Okay, so I have to tell you a funny story. I spent the last week, uh, go ahead and flip your Bible to Matthew 5 um, while I tell you this funny story. I spent the last week in a hotel room with Mark Middlecoff because we went to General Assembly together in Memphis. The entire week, every time he took out his smartphone to do anything, he was like, do you see what I can do with this smartphone? So kind of in my face all the time. Um, yeah, I won't say too much more, but obviously um, barbers are incredibly grateful for our time here. We love you all very dearly. Uh, we'll miss you all. We will return. We'll be back. I'll fill in for him occasionally. Uh, I'm not going to finish the Sermon on the Mount with you guys, which means I have to keep coming back and just working on it. I think it'll be a, uh, I think it'll be a running joke. Six years later, we'll finish <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. I also have to tell you one thing. Uh, Kevin, whom I love, uh, every time I preach, if I forget to shave, he points it out. And so I intentionally left a little stubble just for Kevin on my final, <laughs> my final Sunday. Thank you, Kevin, keeping me on the straight and narrow. All right. So today we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you recall, um, with the Sermon on the Mount, the idea is essentially it's the moment when the adult enters the room. So the kids are in the room fighting. Total anarchy has happened. And the adult enters the room, and everybody knows they're doing the wrong thing. That uh, the way they've been operating is not true. That's what happens when Jesus steps in and gives the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount. The adult has entered the room, and he's telling us the true way to live, the true way to pursue and glorify God. So, today we are looking at Blessed are the Merciful. I'm going to read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because the more we can hear it, the better off we will be. So let's actually start in Matthew 4, 23, and we'll read uh, through Matthew 5, 12. Here's uh, God's word. And we went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we know your word is good and true. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular is they are deep and wide, and there's so many different things we could glean from it. We ask this morning you would soften our hearts and help us to receive just a little 
bit of this truth that you have given to us. Thank you that Jesus spoke then. He speaks now. May we hear what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so even though I am finishing my tenure as an English department chair, I still read quite a bit. And uh, one of the books that's really stood out to me in the last year that I've read is a book by Jessica Harris called The Beggar's Daughter. It's a really powerful, small, powerful book about a young woman's life in the church. And the story, well, the story is primarily about her, uh, her pornography addiction as a young woman in the church. And I, I bring up this story because not necessarily we're going to talk a little bit about that, but mostly it turns out to be an incredible picture of mercy. Uh, both bad, like poor and merciless behavior and merciful behavior. The first half of this book, which is a testimony of her life, is defined by a lack of mercy and deep hiding on her part. But the second shows this beautiful picture of what the church looks like when it's merciful. What's striking is how often the lack of mercy she received came on her and just, she just had all these moments that were so close to things coming out in the open and her receiving real help and real mercy and it just didn't uh, pan out. When she first attended college, she was at a Christian university in the early days of the internet when you had the, you know, ethernet and it took eight years to connect and AOL was always telling you things. Uh, and she didn't realize the school was monitoring her searches. After weeks at school, she was called into the administrator's office, and she thought to herself she was afraid, but she also thought, maybe finally, there's a part of her that was like, maybe finally this will come out, and I can get help. And the administrator put this big folder on the desk and said, these are all the searches you've had. And the administrator, instead of helping, said, hey, quit letting boys use your computer. Jessica couldn't believe it and moved on with her life, her addiction buried even deeper. The first half of her story was defined by moments like that, just really close. But there was one moment in particular that I, I haven't been able to shake that, that stands out to me that I want to I break down a little bit because I think we have been in a situation like this. Jessica Harris writes about, she remembers being in her kitchen, listening to her grandmother speak, and it had just come out that a, a civic leader had failed in a way very similar to Jessica Harris. And her grandmother was kind of going on a, a tirade about this. You know, what a sick, sick person. I can't believe he would do this. These are sick people, and so on. And what the grandmother didn't realize is that she, she was attempting to kind of bury the, the civic leader, the man, but she was burying her granddaughter as well. Because Jessica Harris was sitting there making a commitment that, oh, I, I can't tell anybody about this. Because what she was hearing was not, that guy's such a sick person. She was hearing, I am a sick person. I read this a while ago, but that moment with the grandmother has really stuck with me, uh, and there's redemption, and we'll get to that, but I think we've all been there where we've been kind of ranting about a failure of someone else while a kid or someone else sits nearby and absorbs what we're saying. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the grandmother's impulse is true, right? The leader was doing the wrong thing and uh, had hurt a lot of people and betrayed the people he was serving. But alongside those things that she was saying, she had not filtered those thoughts through the true story, which is defined by mercy. She was speaking in a way uninformed by the gospel. She was speaking in a way that if you listened, you wouldn't know that she followed Christ. And this had a lasting impact on her granddaughter. So our impulse, I think, is a lot like uh, the grandmother in that situation. Uh, we love karma. 
We want bad guys and good guys, and we want the bad guys to lose. I was at my son's baseball game the other day, and just overhearing conversations, the majority of the conversations I overheard around people around me are, can you believe this person did that thing? I would never do that thing. They disgust me. That literally is the majority of the conversations I hear, just kind of, even as I'm sitting there watching a baseball game. And it can be easy to see that on the outside where I'm sitting there quietly listening, like, oh, those people, yeah, I do the same thing. And I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, we all have that mode that we slip into so easily. And so at the core, I think we're not merciful because the true goal of our hearts is we want to be superior. We're not merciful because we want to be superior. We're not merciful because we don't know what to do with our shame. We're not merciful because it's messy to be merciful. True mercy is costly. But the big one is this. I think... When we're not merciful, it's because we're not really reckoning with Jesus and how he deals with us. Because the kicker is this, true mercy is how God reverses the inevitable, and we've received that mercy, and it changes everything. So I want to look at two things. I just want to look at the merciless heart and then the merciful heart. And then I want to revisit that moment with the grandmother and Jessica Harris and use some sanctified imagination to say, what would it look like for this to go differently and hopefully encourage us there as well. So let's start with, uh, let's start by defining mercy. So is mercy just, you know, you can kind of get into Christianese mode where there's like grace, forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and you just jumble them up and throw them up in the air and pick one of them. They actually mean different things occasionally. Uh, so the line can get blurry, but at the end of the day, mercy, and this is Richard Lenski's definition, mercy always deals with what we see of pain misery and distress, the results of sin, whereas grace deals with the sin and guilt itself. So mercy extends relief, grace pardon. Mercy cures, heals, and helps. Grace cleanses and reinstates. It's why we call it mercy ministries, right? Because it's the, it's the practical place where you reach out and do the healing and the dealing with real misery. Uh, the reason mercy is so intertwined with grace is because you really need both for full restoration. There's this passage in James where he says, listen, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and doesn't have food and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need, what good is that? And he's saying that person is offering grace. The gospel's good. Be blessed. You're forgiven. But not mercy. And let me help you. Let me step in with you. Mercy is for all of us. It is for the person who, due to no fault of their own, has on the, lived a difficult life of suffering. And it's for the person who, through every fault of their own, has made a total mess of things. Both people need grace and both people need mercy. They need the forgiveness of God through Christ, of course, but they also need someone to step into that space with them, to walk with them help pay for their needs, love them through the difficulty of their lives. That is mercy. And if I can say this, mercy is where things get messy and difficult. The reason why I think sometimes up here it can be easy to say, you know, the grace part, you are sinful but through Christ you're forgiven, and then kind of end the sermon. That's a very true thing and good, and I should say it every time I'm up here. But it's a lot harder to answer the next question. Okay, if that's true, what next? What do I do? with my sufferings and the mess I'm in and the place I'm at. 
There's some of you in this room who've been through a long journey of particular suffering. And when I say it, you immediately have something that comes to your head. Maybe it's something that happened to you. Maybe it was a moment you were sinned against. Maybe it was a sin you committed. Maybe it wasn't even a sin, but just something foolish you did. And right now you can look back and see how far you've come. And I imagine if that's you, if the road was long and arduous, you probably had merciful partners who walked alongside of you. And some of you in this room right now have people that you could never say thank you enough to them. They have given in a way that can never be repaid. They have shown you mercy. Mercy is where the rubber hits the road. And because it's messy, and because it's where the rubber hits the road, I want to go to a story that Jesus gives us. Jesus tells us a lot of parables, and I think it's because it's easy to say, blessed are the merciful, and go, yeah, that's nice. But we need it unpacked. We need story. We need to see. And so I had us read the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is the story of mercy. I mean, every story of Jesus is dripping with mercy. The fact he's speaking at all is merciful. He is God who has come the minute he's on the Sermon on the Mount preaching and telling the good news of the gospel is the most merciful thing, right? Every moment like that is mercy. But the Good Samaritan is a place we see it most powerfully shown. And I want to I do a few things just about it. It starts off, we have this lawyer, and it's very similar to the rich young ruler, which we've talked about a few times. There's this lawyer, and he says, hey, Jesus, you know, uh, I'm asking you some questions about salvation. And he asks this, who is my neighbor? Now, what's he really asking? He's really asking, who isn't my neighbor? Right? He's saying, where is the limit? Where is the place where I can finally quit showing mercy and do what I want, which is say, those people are terrible, right? Mercy goes up here, but if, if these people are my neighbor and these people aren't, then finally I can tell them what's up. He's like saying, where can I turn a blind eye? Who doesn't deserve mercy? Now, if we're honest, we all have people in places like this. Uh, most of social media seems to be yeah, I can, I can accept so much, except these people, and they've crossed the bridge too far, and I will never show them mercy, right? Um, I, I talked to uh, Jess and I were talking about how I feel like I am the least merciful when I'm in a place where I don't know people, and I'm just observing. When I know people, I can start to go, oh, I know their story, but when I don't know people and you just see people be rude, you're like, oh, what a horrible, you know? I, I feel like a judgment machine when I'm kind of out. Uh, it's bad news. So he asks this question, and Jesus, when he says, who is my neighbor, Jesus turns and gives this zinger of a story. And we've, some of us in this room have heard it so many times that it doesn't quite land the way it did, but this is a zinger of a story, all right? Uh, he, he talks about, there's this guy going, he gets beat up by these robbers, stripped of his clothes, thrown into a pit, and then these three people come by. And the first two are people that you would expect would be heroes of the story. They are the righteous dudes. It's a priest and a Levite. And uh, I guess in our setting, it would be a little like telling a story. This person was beat up on the side of the road, but first, you know, uh, uh, a pastor came by. And you're like, oh, well, he'll do the right thing. And he moves on. And next, this famous published Christian blogger comes by, right? Like, oh, well, they'll definitely do the right thing. And they pass by. He starts, he takes the best heroes and just has them totally blow it. Why does he do that? Why do they 
pass by. Well, unfortunately, I have a story from myself in college that I think exemplifies this pretty well. Um, I was an upperclassman, and I was in my college ministry, and there were some freshmen who lived in this apartment complex. They didn't have a car, and I was going to drive them, take them out to eat, something like that, trying to recruit them for the ministry. One thing I didn't realize is that the apartment that night was having this giant fraternity sorority party event, and they had this system set up where, like, fraternity bro- younger fraternity brothers were driving by, and they were giving sorority, young sorority sisters rides back to their, their dorm or sorority house. So I didn't know this was going on, and I ended up kind of in line to do this. Uh, and, you know, the freshman guys see me, and they get in, and then three very intoxicated young women also hop in my vehicle. Now, at the time, I respond, excuse me, you're in the wrong car. They're not sober, and they get really upset with me, uh, telling me I'm supposed to give them a ride, so forth, and their entitlement really gets to me. I get really angry, and I convince them to leave. They bless me out pretty well. Here's the thing that haunts me about that moment. I'm reasonably confident they got home okay, but in the abstract, shouldn't that have been the safest place for them to wander into? If someone could tell their parents that night, hey, your daughters are intoxicated, not in a great place, but guess what? They'll wander into the car of a Christian. Shouldn't that be a relief? Shouldn't that be good news? But I didn't want the freshman guys to think I was that kind of person. You're partying to hang out with people like that. And besides, it's my car. What right do they have to get into my car? thought I was showing the freshmen that I was not that kind of person, and you know what? I totally showed them what kind of person I was. I thought I was judging those young women that day, but I was judging myself. As Christ put it, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The Levite and the priest, when they were passing by this man who was beaten and stripped on the side of the road, they probably thought things like, well, they probably deserve it. God's judged him. Look at this guy. Does he even have a home and all this? They probably thought they were preserving their holiness. I can't let people see me with this naked man, right? If I wander into town with this guy, what will people think? They thought they were judging him, but they were judging themselves. So when Jessica Harris's grandmother was railing against this failed leader, she wasn't saying something new about the failed leader. She was speaking about herself. The true cry of the merciless heart, one that I know too well, and you probably know too well too, is the prayer of the Pharisee from another parable. Thank God I'm not like that person. The merciless heart's only concerned with self-justification. But Jesus' answer to the lawyer is simple. Everyone is your neighbor. And the gospel is not about avoiding broken people. It draws towards them. And that is such good news for you and me. The gospel is not about avoiding broken people. It draws towards them. And if you, right now on reflection, have a belief system of theology that pushes you away from broken people, I want to challenge you that you're not believing like Jesus. That the gospel pushes us towards brokenness, not away from it. All right, so that's the merciless heart. But now let's look at the merciful heart. So we get the final person of the story. And Jesus picks, he's, he's, he's such a punk in this story. He picks these characters that you're just like, ha! Uh, 
He, when he picks the Samaritan, this would be like, if you're a conservative, he's like, then a Marxist walks down the road. Or if you're a liberal, he's like, then a fundamentalist walks down the road. He's picking somebody that like, it's like, ah, that person, like the person, they do not want to imagine that person doing something good. It breaks their narrative to have that person do something good, right? And that's the person he picks. And he starts off this story, and I want you to, I want you to notice the messy mercy of the Samaritan here. It was courageous. Do you think the Samaritan's friends were happy with what he was doing? Why are you helping that guy out? Don't you know how our animosity together, why would you do that? He was probably confusing people by helping. Do you like affirm that person? What's going on with you, you know? It was also costly. He spent all this money to set him up. He gave like a blank check. And it was unconditional. The Samaritan didn't go over and go, hey, did you get beat up? Like, did you do something wrong? Uh, Because if you did, I won't help you. But if you're in the clear, I'd love to help you. He just helps him. I hope you see where this is going. Who is the Samaritan echoing? Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Christ, who, according to Philippians 2, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was socially courageous. He was hanging out with us. (laughs) He was constantly hanging out with people that made him look bad. He was routinely accused of being like a hedonistic partier because he was hanging out with the wrong type of people. He met with women when nobody else would and took them very, very seriously, treated them as disciples when no other, nobody else would. He met with tax collectors who had betrayed their country. He met with lepers when no one else would. When people were holding back the children, he's like, let the children come to me. See a trend? He doesn't care what it looks like. He loves the person in front of him. I'm sure his disciples got sick of it, right? Doesn't he, can't we just hang out with the right person like once? You know, and every time we get invited to the right person, he says something ridiculous. Uh, Secondly, the mercy of Jesus was costly. It was his whole life. He dies on the cross for us. It cost him everything. He's separated from the holy God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is what he cries out from the cross. He's separated from God for that moment for us. And the mercy was unconditional. He did not ask Did we deserve it? Because if he did, he would not have come. The answer would have been simple. Of course not. But he simply loved. There's a great passage in the Bible where God is talking to the Israelites and he says, I love you because I love you. There's there's no reason. I love you because I love you. That's Jesus. That's unconditional love. And when we meet this Jesus, when we run into this Jesus, who has done these things for us, our lives can't help but respond by following after him. While we were still enemies, he died for us. We, when we have received this mercy, how can we not give it away ourselves? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciless heart is only conceived, did you catch the question, the lawyer, he wanted to justify himself. The merciless heart is only concerned with justifying themselves. But the merciful heart is enraptured by the justification of God, freely given and at high cost to himself. I want to look back at uh, that moment with 
the grandmother in the kitchen. Of course, I, I empathize with her a lot. I feel like I've been in that moment where you're kind of ranting on something. She's angry and frustrated by the leader's failure. She should be. She sounds like she's a high J, like myself. There's a part of that anger that's right and just. Shalom has been broken. The world is supposed to function differently, right? But as Christians, we have to put things through the lens of the true story. We don't always start sentences with, I can't believe they would, or how dare they. We believe a story that features all of humanity's rebellion against God. We sing this beautiful hymn where we say, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him. So how would, I, how would, we, how would we revisit this moment and make it better? Here's, a, here's an attempt. I think the answer is prayer, because I think that the answer is to work it out before God and the true story. A pastor friend of mine once said that he always starts his prayers with Jesus' name first, in Jesus' name, because he wants that name over all his prayer. He wants to remember that that's the lens through which he's going to pray. The grandmother's rant in this story was coming really dangerously close to, thank God I'm not like that person. And that's clearly how her granddaughter heard it. But imagine if she had gotten going and then said to her granddaughter, you know, can we pray about this? I'm in a really bad place on this. And what would that prayer have been? Father, I'm so sad and frustrated by this man's actions. It makes me feel hopeless. This is not how the world should be. But Father, thank you for bringing this to the light. I know that when something like this surfaces, that's the best chance for justice and mercy. It's when you go to work. Please be with everyone who's suffering because this man sins against you. And surround this man with good counsel and merciful Christians who can point to the only one who can bring true healing. May there be true justice, yes, and may there be serious mercy that leads the man to the cross. Forgive me when I forget the true story, that I was lost, but now I'm found. Amen. All right, if she had done that, do you see the posture difference? Can you imagine what impact this would have had on people listening? And did you notice something? She just embodied all of the Beatitudes. Suddenly the Beatitudes would have applied. Listen, blessed are the poor in spirit. Did she sound poor in spirit? Yeah, she's on her knees before a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn. She started angry, but she moved to real mourning. I'm sad that the world is like this. Jesus says, they shall receive comfort. Blessed are the meek. Does she put herself above anyone? No, she sees herself as a sinner as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is she excusing sin? No. She's grateful it was found out. She sees a chance for real repentance and restoration. And finally, blessed are the merciful. Is she merciful in this moment? Yes, she is. When you put her before Jesus, when you put us before Jesus, these things start to happen because we're in front of the merciful one. These are the kind of prayers that I think would lead someone like Jessica Harris to have opened up to her grandmother. She would have seen that her grandmother was a merciful woman and probably someone willing to do the whole merciful journey with her granddaughter. A true encounter with Jesus makes us merciful. Well, I haven't addressed the one thing, which is uh, in the passage, right? It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does that mean? Do we run out and we be merciful so that we earn the mercy of God? No. How will the merciful receive mercy? Because they'll be encountering Jesus. 
Do you see that in that hypothetical prayer that the grandmother that I just that with the grandmother? She is also receiving mercy in that moment because she is before a loving Jesus. Her prayer, seeking to show mercy, is the very way in which she's receiving mercy herself. Well, uh, Jessica Harris's story ends in an amazing place. After years of hiding and never receiving mercy, she goes to a new university, another Christian one, and this time uh, the dean of students has a really powerful talk at one moment to the dorm and says, if there's anything you've been uh, struggling with and want help, just write it on a sheet of paper and put it here. And for the first time in her life, she writes something down and puts it there. She gets back to her dorm room and she can't believe she's done it. Uh, all the waves of shame and guilt are, are slamming her tremendously. And she gets a knock at the door from the RA and she's like almost already packing up. She's like, they're gonna kick me out. And instead, the first words she hears are, hey, what you wrote was really brave and we're gonna help you. Grace and mercy. And I wanna read you a bit of what Jessica Harris writes at this moment. Brave, she says, that wasn't exactly the adjective I was anticipating. Disgusting, unacceptable, gross, take your pick. Brave was not on the list. I did not feel brave. I had dragged myself to my dorm room that night believing lies. No one can help me. I was a freak. I was beyond hope. That conversation with my RA was like shining a bright light into a dark place. I was not beyond help. If people were willing to help me, then maybe God could actually help me too. That's mercy. The journey of the rest of the book is tough. It's hard. I, I recommend it. It's a good book. Dying to self often feels like dying. But the difference is in that second half, she, she runs into Jesus through the ministry of the church. She runs into mercy. And the beautiful thing about this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, is that cyclical thing. We are both, as Christians, in that story, we are both Jessica Harris and the RA. We are both the one with the door closed, believing that when it opens, someone will be there to tell us that we don't deserve to be here. We have those lies. I'm a freak. I don't. And we need that knock. We need Christ to come to us and show us mercy. And once we've received that, we are also the RA. We are the one who knocks on the door of people who are hiding and say, you're very brave and I want to go with you. So if you haven't received that mercy yourself, your brother Christ stands at the door ready to show it to you. And if you have, the charge is simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are very good. The gospel is so good. We so infrequently reflect it. And yet, I thank you that all the songs we have sung this morning are true. That if we are in Christ, in our worst moments, you are with us. You forgive us. You guide us to you. We live in a merciless world, and you call us to show mercy. And you also give it with full abundance. You are eager to show us mercy. You leap at the moment that prayer leaves our lips. You desire nothing more than to forgive. You do not forgive begrudgingly. You forgive in joy. You show us mercy with joy. Father, there are so many of us in this room who just don't believe that. 
Father, convict us this morning. Help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to who you are. You went to the cross for the joy that was laid before you. You endured the cross. And that joy is everyone in this room. Father, thank you that you do not begrudgingly love us. You did not do it out of some strange duty. You did it because you love us. You love us because you love us. May we rest in that even for a little bit this day. In Jesus' name, amen.